0: Coming up in this episode.
1: The fact that what I'm doing is making an impact. And even more importantly, for me personally, I feel like a teenager. I mean, my libido, my ability to be able to bounce back from workouts, my immune system, the way I feel when I travel, the way I feel after a hard workout in terms of clinical studies... Yeah, it's a multimodal stacking of a lot of things, and you can't necessarily say what exactly is working, right? Is it the peptide protocol? Is it the red light? Is it the grounding and earthing? Learning how to play handpan and ukulele instead of just sticking to my same old hobbies like tennis or weightlifting and snowboarding? You know who knows what it is, but ultimately, you know I think when you stack a lot of these things, uh, you do see a profound impact in terms of the way you feel biologically. Welcome
0: to the HVMN podcast. What we do with our bodies today becomes the foundation of who we are tomorrow. This is Health via Modern Nutrition. All right, Mr. Ben Greenfield. Welcome back to the HVMN podcast. Really great to have you back on. Hey, it's it's awesome to be back. So last time you were on, I feel like was about almost three years ago, and. You've probably seen it at the forefront of, of, of almost anyone in terms of how mainstream media has talked about and looked at the notion of biohacking. So maybe we'll start super broad. You've seen a lot of the, these different waves of interest, where that's focused on longevity or performance. What do you make of uh-huh. the last couple of years when we have folks like Jack Dorsey, a, a popular podcast with him, <laughs> who who has who has an eating disorder apparently? <laughs> yeah. So. I want to just get your get your sense in terms of the evolution of how mainstream media portrays our general space here. How much science and credibility has evolved over time?
1: Like my my gut feeling about the way that media portrays biohacking is there. There's kind of two different angles. They a see kind of like the possibly dangerous, more fringe things people might be doing, like injecting chlorophyll into the eyeballs or you know, putting magnetic implants into the body or, you know, kind of doing the whole old school grinder thing, right? Like using the human body as wetware and the the implants or technologies that might be put into the body or placed on the body as hardware. And they'll use that as like a sexy story to point out the, the dumb things that people do, like whatever self-inflicted CRISPR gene editing and, um, and, and almost like, You know, paint biohacking as being comprised of a bunch of freak, mostly male technology enthusiasts who are out harming themselves by doing unnatural things to their bodies. And as you and I both know, I mean, like that's a pretty small subset of the biohacking population these days, you know, and and now biohacking has grown to be such a broad term that you're a biohacker if you put coconut oil in your green tea you know you're you're not a chef you're a biohacker and, and so you know now the the term is so broad it's it's almost difficult to to really define what is hacking biology versus what is just taking a few simple steps to make your life more healthy but i i, th- I think that the media does like to kind of glob on to some of these more fringe things people are doing and really highlight that. I mean, I've experienced that myself, you know, for example, um, you know, of of course the whole, uh, penis (laughs) stem cell thing seems to be this topic that comes up over and over again that I can't seem to live down, you know, that, that I, that I, you know, did a, did a stem cell protocol, for my penis, which is something that's been done for years for things like erectile dysfunction or Peyronie's disease, but because a, a healthy young male happened to try it out to see what would happen in a healthy person who did it, you know, the media just takes that and runs with it. You know, and I'm I'm painted as as the penis guy or the penis biohacking guy, and it, you know that it, it's interesting because I'm doing so many other things to optimize biology and health span and lifespan. You know, from red light therapy to cold thermogenesis to mitigation of carbohydrate intake, et cetera, et cetera. But that's that's what the media kind of kinda clings to, is anything that's that's either controversial or, or fringe or would make for a sexy story. That's really just how the how the media works. So so that that's one thing is that you know we tend to see the portrayal of biohacking really being almost like unfairly shifted towards a portrayal of a bunch of crazy people out doing crazy things to their bodies. Now, on the other hand, on the flip side, we tend to see a lot of people who are health enthusiasts and who care about their bodies doing what, again, now that the term biohacking has become a very broad term, things that in older times would have just been considered ancestral practices or even religious practices or spiritual disciplines like take fasting for example you brought up jack dorsey right who is i think currently eating one meal a day and using compressed feeding windows and that's not necessarily something that flies in the face of human biology or even some ancestral eating patterns you know having one to to you know maximum of three feedings per day versus snacking and grazing all day long But, you know, when someone's doing something natural like that and it gets out in the media, especially in their public figure, you know, the the media, you know, they turned around and portrayed that as Jack Dorsey has an eating disorder. And this is going to be dangerous for people who might not be able to get by on just one meal a day. You know, their reporter probably doesn't realize that one meal a day is like, you know, a huge ribeye steak with some Roasted carrots and half a bottle of red wine and maybe some dark chocolate coconut ice cream afterwards. And you know, it's, it's one a meal a day. You know, yeah. The pe- yeah, the people who successfully do it treat it as though our, our ancestors would have, you know, when coming upon a, a hunt or a kill in the wilderness, you eat a lot of food and then you're off foraging again for a long period of time, perhaps with long periods of time not eating between those meals. And you know, but but it's very simple for the media to take something like that and run with it. Or let's say something like, um, you know, full body sunlight exposure, full body infrared exposure for collagen or elastin production, or even, you know, when used on the gonad, something like increased, you know, mitochondrial activity of the cells in the testes, you produce more testosterone, you know. We know there's, there's research going back, I think it's all the way back to the 30s or the 40s, showing that, you know, full body sunlight exposure is actually a pretty beneficial tactic or strategy or practice. Um, and yet, we see the media just absolutely, you know, di- di- d- g- f- seeming seeming to make a huge deal out of people who might be um, out whatever sunning their perineum or using big red light therapy devices. So that that or, big
0: meme, I think, over the winter holidays, right, where there's uh, those yeah folks like shining, you know, like I guess spreading their legs in the sun, right? Uh, what uh, what right. Were they tampering
1: like butt lighting or butt, but something yeah, like perineum? Per- Perennial tanning, and that, that's not that's not a practice that I still so engage in. <laughs> but I do make sure that I get you know a level of sunlight exposure per day without sunscreen that many folks in media and even many physicians would say is going to increase my risk for skin cancer, which it doesn't. It actually decreases your risk for skin cancer. Frequent low dose exposure to UVA and UVB radiation as a as a hormetic stressor can protect you from skin cancer, and the similar thing could be said for for infrared or Or uh, red light therapy. And so, the broad answer to your question is basically the media takes fringe biohackers doing dumb or slightly risky things and paints with a broad brush as that being a definition of, of biohacking in general. And then they also take ancestral tactics that people are now returning to and paint that as being some kind of also advanced dangerous biohacker disorder when, in fact, we're simply trying to overcome some of the evolutionary mismatches that we now encounter in in a post industrial era. So, you know, really, in my experience, those are, those are two ways that I've seen the media portray biohacking. Yeah, I think that's well said. I want to reflect on those two points in the sense that
0: I empathize with folks in the political world, talking about fake news in terms of just having these narratives that they want to tell that describe some niches that will drive clicks. Um, Exactly. I think with with Jack Dorsey, I think you actually connected me with him around uh, fasting. And the, the New York Times wrote a crazy article about him on your podcast talking about basically starving himself. And when you actually look at the science, it's actually quite justified by the literature. People, you know, sitting in a journalism room just want to tell these fantastical stories. But my sense is that it's driving broader awareness. I feel like the communities and the interest in these topics are bigger than ever, right? Uh, And I would say that what I've seen over the last five years has gone from kind of like much more performance, niche, nootropics, or microdosing LSD stories to then talking more about fasting and more ancestral practices. And I would say that within the last year or so, a lot of it's focused now on anti-aging and longevity. You really are tying ancestral best practices, things like fasting, but also more I guess speculative things like grounding, earthing, plant-based medicines, meditation, um, but you also are very cutting edge with things like stem cell injections. And some of those things are so cutting edge. We really don't have randomized controlled trial data or a gold standard clinical trial on some of these interventions. So I'm curious as you assess all these biohacks, all these interventions, how do you think about the level of evidence for you to try Versus you recommending, how do you synthesize and put this together in a, in a, in a holistic framework?
1: Yeah, I have two thoughts. The, the first is, you know, early in your question, you kind of alluded to this idea of really a large part of this being att- an attempt to simulate a more ancestral experience in a largely industrial era. And so when we look at a lot of these biohacks, we're simply taking what we'd normally experience in nature and kind of fighting that uphill battle against all these evolutionary mismatches we're surrounded by to simulate that in our offices or in our homes. So, you know, sure, you could go outside barefoot or lay on your back with your shirt off in a park and be soaking up the negative ions that we know the Earth delivers. But if that's not something that you're able to do, you can, you know, purchase some biohacking device like a grounding mat or an earthing mat or a pulsed electromagnetic field device set at you know, seven point eight hertz or so, and deliver those same frequencies when you're asleep, you know eight floors up on a high-rise condo, or standing in your office in which you you're not even on a ground floor with a conductive concrete surface. Or you could say, realize the the benefits of some of the infrared and red light spectrum that we get from sunlight. Yet if you're unable to get under the sun due to your job, or, or due to your your night shift, or whatever the case may be, you can re- you can use you know near infrared or, or red light panels or or light producing devices to simulate that in your own home or in your office. Um, you know, you might not live in an area where you could experience the same type of fluctuations in temperature that your ancestors may have. Maybe you're a northern European uh, living in, in L.A., right? And so you can take advantage of things like a, a cryotherapy chamber to get that same type of cold thermogenesis response because you simply aren't out in the snow and the, and the rain and, and the cold. Um, you know, the same could be said for heat, right? Maybe you don't have a physically demanding job where you're out sweating and producing heat shock proteins and building fences and lifting rocks and gardening or hunting or foraging in the midday heat. But perhaps after your gym session, you're able to hit the sauna, catch up on an audiobook or a podcast or a magazine and get that same heat producing effect in that environment. So so many of these biohacks, we're simply attempting to simulate what we might be able to get from ancestry. And I in no way would say that if we have access to all these technologies, we should not be outside barefoot or in the sunlight, or you know, on a cold day going for a walk outside rather than visiting a crowd therapy chamber. But you know the the realistic fact is that you know in many cases, we're not able to get out and do some of those things depending on our circumstances or jobs or time, et cetera. So I think some of these technologies do a very good job mimicking nature. Now, my my second thought regarding your question is, it is true that the the issue with some of these biohacks is that there aren't any randomized clinical trials or good controlled human trials on, um, let's say, something like, you know, what would happen if a, if a healthy young male were to inject stem cells into his genitals. You know, in a case like that, sometimes you have to look at the existing literature on you know, less well population to have done something like that and establish any risk parameters after reviewing the literature. And, you know, in other cases, when we're talking about, let's say, anti-aging and longevity, in many cases, we're looking at multimodal approaches, right? It's very similar to like, you know, Dale Bredesen's book, End of Alzheimer's. It's difficult to build a, a, a large, robust human clinical study around his approach which has been proven to be beneficial anecdotally, but involves hyperbaric oxygen, fish oil, ketones, you know, vimpocetine and other blood flow enhancers, intermittent fasting, uh, you know, infrared and and near light frequencies, uh, you know, intranasally or over the head, you know, all these different modes that when stacked are effective, but when in isolation don't appear to be as effective. And so if you look at anti-aging and longevity, Sure, we, we know if you increase your sirtuin intake, your NAD intake, uh, you know, pay attention to your mitochondrial health and, you know, perhaps even use peptides, you know, such as epitalin or MOTC or humanin as calorie restriction memetics and use something like exogenous ketones to enhance NF-kappa-B pathways. Like, we know that all of these things stack to address multiple mechanisms that contribute to aging yet there's not any big studies that stack them all together and say well here's what happens in humans you know from the age of 30 on up to 90 when using these strategies so there is quite a bit of extrapolation that occurs and you know as simple as it might seem you know for me once i've looked over the data on any given strategy whether it's photobiomodulation or ketosis and i've evaluated any risk for those you know, at, at that point, I'm pretty willing to try something out, but I won't make any claims that, you know, stacking these eight things together is going to have X effects because you simply can't say. What I can say is you can look at anecdotes, right? And, you know, for me, coming from like the everything from, you know, Ironman triathlon to bodybuilding and, you know, deep dark forums where people are reporting on, you know, whatever, what dosage of methylene blue worked for them or, you know, or how they felt when combining uh, intermittent fasting with cold thermogenesis for fat loss. You know, you're simply looking at anecdotes from collections of people who are talking about these things, trying things out and seeing what works for you. But for me, it's always with the caveat that I do go to the literature and I don't just review the literature abstracts, but I dig into the full studies because, you know, for example, eighty percent of the research out there is done on male models, male human models, male rodent models, et cetera. Yeah. And if I'm working with a female client who's asking me about whatever uh, the appropriateness of a sixteen-hour intermittent fast for her, and all the data shows that to be beneficial for men, but then once you dig in, there's some endocrine dysregulation that occurs with women. You know, then then you can you can actually be a little bit more precise with the application of the research and. You know, I, for for me, it's it's a little tricky because a lot of these journals aren't open source, and it can be get pretty expensive to get access to them. I, I have one. I probably shouldn't share it on air. Maybe I'll share it with you after the show. But there is one website that allows you to pretty much get free access to every journal it's it's kind of a little got to find an academic it. affiliation can, so you can you get some on it. your browser yeah. But okay if i say it on the podcast everybody gets a hold of it it might disappear pretty soon or get shut down yeah uh but you know there, there are little ways to get around you know the getting access to the full text but i think you know looking at the methods looking at the subjects and digging into a little bit more than just the abstract can be pretty beneficial as well
0: yeah i think that's a quite sensible approach i mean I would say that I started off in this space much more conservative, right? Because I think if you talk to very classic professors at institutions, they'll just say, hey, there's no RCT human data on the population. It's all kind of speculation. But I think as you actually, and and, and in your case, right, you have clinical experience working with specific clients or patients and whatnot, or you work with athletes. And I think in our case, working with specific high-end performance use cases, You start building up these anecdotes or these case studies one at a time, and you're seeing that these protocols, you're seeing data, they might not be a controlled data set, but there's clearly some signal there. Doctors like Jason Fung putting people through, thousands of people through fasting procedures to reverse or control their diabetes, or you have, you know, strong anecdotal folks like Michaela Peterson talking about her carnivore diet really resolving autoimmune issues. And to me, it's like, yes, these are not RCTs, but they seem like credible people. I don't think they're lying about their, their, uh, their, their, their N equals one experiment. And I think there's something to extrapolate from there. So it's, yes, I think use the literature, use the RCT data to really understand our best understanding of the mechanisms. And then I think at the cutting edge, how do you take some of these anecdotes or these case studies or these N equals ones so of people really pushing limits?
1: And, and, and quantify. I mean, we live in an era where the you know, the, the same tests that executives would have had to have paid tens of thousands of dollars to Princeton Longevity Institute a decade ago are now accessible to us in the comfort of our own home. So yeah. not only can we track in real-time HRV pretty accurately we're using wearables along with sleep cycles, along with resting heart rate, et cetera, and get, get a, a running parameter every single day of how some of these strategies are affecting our nervous system or our sleep cycles – or you know, if you're in the case of something like a continuous blood glucose monitor, your glycemic variability. But I mean, I, I quantify pretty regularly. I mean, I do a quarterly blood panel, typically a quarterly up to a yearly gut panel. Um, I, I run my DNA pretty extensively through you know, the increasing number of DNA analysis platforms that are out there. Um, I do a urinary hormone test on a quarterly up to a yearly basis. I will typically do like a a blood micronutrient evaluation as well, like a NutraVal about once a year. So I'm getting access to a lot of data and anytime I throw in something really considerably new, like let's say I'm going to use, you know, like one of the things I talk about in my book are some of these telomerase activators and I'm going to spend money on something like, you know, TA65 or TAM818, you know, those are not small investments, you know, I'll I'll, I'll do something like a spectrocell telomere analysis, use that protocol for a few months, and then retest to see if that's something that's going to stick with me. And at the same time, when I'm getting blood analysis of inflammatory markers or endocrine regulation or thyroid regulation, it allows me to also see if there's any deleterious or negative side effects from those strategies. So I think quantification is really important too. If you are going to treat yourself anecdotally and experiment with some of these things that don't have robust human clinical research behind them or or randomized trials. Yeah.
0: Again, I want to go back to like, how do you integrate kind of the notion around, we want to mimic our best ancestral practices, but obviously our caveman ancestors weren't using telomerase activators or sirtuin activators. Right. Is there a threshold that kicks off the evidence? Is there a hard, fast rule for you? Is there a heuristic that you really focus on or is it case by case? you look at any specific intervention, you talk to the specific expert that's been studying this and, and decide from there.
1: It's, it's the latter. Okay. The, the only heuristic that, that, that I address, you know, especially uh, for, for people who reach out and they're like, well, what what do I choose? You talk about so many things, you know, where do I start? It's always with the foundational principles, right? Holistic nutrition and movement. And then uh, basically addressing the body, you know, very similar to what you know Robert Becker initially outlined in his book, The Body Electric, and, and which has since been you know fleshed out by everyone from from uh, Gilbert Lean to to Michael Hamblin and and a lot of these researchers who who look at the electrical potential of the human body that you can find a you know a lot of really good studies behind. But this idea of treating the body as a battery, I think if you have nutrition and movement down. You then move on to basically some of the things I already mentioned. Grounding and earthing, sunlight and photonic energy, heat, cold, water, and minerals. Those are essentially the six variables that are the most important in terms of maximizing the electric potential of the human body, maintaining a negative charge within the cell, positive charge outside the cell, maintaining proper movement of fluids throughout the body, and, and I really think that's, that's the place everybody should start. Once you've got those foundational principles in place, nutrition, movement, earthing, grounding, light, heat, cold, water, and minerals, then you can move on to some of these more advanced parameters like, let's say, you know, uh, NAD IVs or the use of, of peptides. Or, you know, some some of these are more, more fringe or more expensive things, but I think you always have to start with the foundational principles.
0: Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, one thing that I've been puzzling a lot about is this notion, what I call the human zoo, that most of us living in a modern culture essentially are in boxes, our house, our office, maybe our gym. You have these three boxes that you just commute between with a smaller box. And right. all these things that you're talking, or or,
1: or, or tubes, if it's an airplane, it could
0: be a tube, right? And a lot of the things that I think you're talking about essentially just pull you out of that context. I mean, you're basically on a treadmill right now, so you're not just on your butt talking to on a screen you're actually doing some sort of ambient physical exercise I probably zone one, zone two is showing, but like gonna, you're going to put in 60, 90 minutes of cardio.
1: I'm in zone four right now, bro. There's <laughs> lactic acid coming out
0: of my pores. You're, you're crushing me. Yeah. I've been curious about just around the cultural and media perception. And I think you touched upon this was this notion that it's all just a bunch of alpha males or a bunch of men doing biohacks. Uh, this is like a bro culture and you're referencing some of your female clients. And I think that's like actually an astute point that, Yes, most clinical trials are done in human men. Mm -hmm. That's an interesting topic in terms of how we update research culture. It's usually human white men done in you know in institutions. There might be you know sex differences and
1: and and well, it's it's also right right now. Last time I checked, it's like sixty five to seventy percent of the researchers also are men. Yeah, so I think it's interesting from a
0: I think commentary on how we maybe provide advice or, or advice to fix the systems. But I'm just curious in terms of is this like a tech bro movement. I mean, what do you see from the ground up? I think, you know, we're referencing this a little bit before, but, you know, I would say a, a lot of women are just as interested, if not more interested, in a lot of these techniques and behaviors. And, and someone, in some sense, the women were the original biohackers having to track their hormonal cycles, their periods, and try to like <laughs> figure out their nutrition to not have cramps and whatnot. So, again, like there was a nice uh, Sunday Times. One article describing you as an alpha male, alpha males. I guess preaching to this <laughs> which, group of men, which
1: i which I, which I'm not. By the way, I mean I it, I grew up playing violin, president of the chess club, total like World of Warcraft, or <laughs> you know I wanted to design video games and be a computer programmer, and kind of you know morphed myself into this jock alpha male type of person. But if you were to come and hang out with me for like a day at my house, like. You'll find me, you know, crying while I'm reading an Anthony DeMello book, um, snuggling with my kids, playing the ham tan and, you know, and, and you know, making kefir in the kitchen. And a lot of people think I run around all day swinging kettlebells in the forest and climbing ropes. And that, that's really that's more of what the media has portrayed me to be. But I'm I'm definitely not an alpha male's alpha male. I'm I'm a pretty uh, hopeless romantic. But that that being said. You know, I I do think that men seem to, and, and I'm sorry if I if I'm stereotyping to the females listening in, but it seems like men tend to be more interested in tinkering with technology and in playing in the realms of science. And I think that's just leftover from, you know, thousands and thousands of years in which women were really relegated to a role of like, you know, you know, you stay at home, you do you do the gardening and the Maybe some of the planting, a little bit of the foraging, take care of the children. It's like some of that might still be kind of epigenetically, even from a micro RNA standpoint, built into the female psyche. You know, men just tend to be early adopters, you know, more willing to go out and do things that might kill them, you know, tinker with technology be interested in taking things apart and putting them back together. And even when you look at little boys versus little girls, you you still see some of those elements still left over. I'm, I'm not necessarily justifying that that's the way society should be built, but I do think that just based on the way humans have operated for thousands of years, some of that's still left over in our epigenetics, like in terms of what we're naturally inclined to be interested in. So yeah, I think a guy's probably more prone to rush out Grab some infrared helmet for their head and put it on while they're at work, while they're standing on some electro stim mat. Um, versus versus a woman, like it just seems like like men tend to be a, a little bit more willing to possibly go out and do dumb, stupid things or play around with technology in strange new ways compared to a lot of women. At the same time, you make a very good point. Um, you know, this whole world of of biohacking has a really unique kind of like female potential bent towards it, you know, in terms of everything from urinary tracking for progesterone and and LH to determine fertility cycles, to altering your exercise, your lifestyle, and your nutrition based on which of the four phases of of your cycle that you're in, to, you know, really addressing some of these, some of these parameters that, that are unique to females, you know, even even intermittent fasting protocols and compressed feeding windows. We know women, based on the the down regulation of kispeptin hormone in response to about 12 hours of intermittent fasting, tend to see some decreases in gonadotropin-releasing hormone, luteinizing hormone, follicle-stimulating hormone, fertility, bone density, etc., especially if they're lean and active with extended fasts, right? So a lot of these these biohacks are going to change from a female to a male, and I realize it's just called fasting, a biohack. That's, it's not, but <laughs> that's, a, that's that's the terminology being used these days. Yeah. It's a it's a biohacking eating disorder. But anyways, yeah, things things are different between females and males. And I, I think also a big part of this is if you look at a lot of the leaders of the biohacking movement, right, like Kevin Warwick and Dave Asprey and you know Peter Diamandis and Peter Thiel, you know, like some of these people who are like big thought leaders in the movement, they're all males, you know, for the most part, that's painting with a broad brush. But I'd, I'd approximate, you know, base, back pocket approximation, maybe like 80% of the leaders in this movement are males, if you're like Google famous biohackers or whatever. So I think that's part of it, too. And again, I think that returns to just the early adopter stereotype that that men kind of tend to fit into.
0: I think there's a growing, perhaps less vocal cohort of women that are more and more keen and interested in these subjects and these topics. I think it very much applies to them, right? I've had female friends ask about, you know, the, the infrared light for collagen production for beauty, right? I think there's been so many protocols that might not be described as biohacking. that are essentially using similar techniques like infrared light for skin health, right. etc. Yeah, and I mean, it, like
1: like, my wife is using like colostrum clay masks now. And combining that with infrared therapy for her skin health. Like, and, and for her, like this, this world of like beauty biohacking is something that's very interesting to her. And, but I also might be a little bit biased because she's not very interested in most of the shit that I do. Like, you, know, you talk about evolutionary mismatches, you know, I'm inside of my computer shining red light in my balls and standing on a grounding mat. And I can look out my office window and she's like pushing a wheelbarrow around the yard full of alfalfa to go feed the goats and chickens. And, you know building a rock wall out in the raised garden bends and then going off to play tennis outside with her girlfriends. And, you know, I'm, I'm stuck indoors and, and, you know, so sometimes I get jealous of her slightly more ancestral lifestyle. while I'm fighting all these evolutionary mismatches.
0: Yeah. It's well said in terms of, we want to get to the same place, but there's a little bit different techniques to get there. One another point that I thought was interesting from the Sunday times article was this notion that beyond just being, A coach and a thought leader in terms of just like kind of the physical interventions around, you know, nutrition, sleep, fitness. It's also the emotional and almost, I would say, the almost like establishing a philosophical framework for other people. Podcasts are becoming increasingly more and more popular, like these long-form conversations. You see David Goggins. I think you're a good example as well of just having a certain aesthetic of how to live a well-lived life. And to me, it feels like these influencers, these folks on YouTube, these podcast hosts are replacing what used to be the pastor or those, these religious figures, religious leaders that were, used to be part of our normal everyday life. Right? Religion has become less important in terms of establishing a philosophical framework of how to live a moral, well-lived life. I see like a trend of these YouTubers or influencers, these podcast posts coming in, kind of filling that gap and void. Mm -hmm. You have a sense of aesthetics of what a well-lived life looks like. And I feel like part of the popularity of folks like yourself is that you're giving a framework, a roadmap of how to do that for other people. Does that seem like overdone? Does that seem like a broader
1: trend? It it is somewhat accurate. You know, the the first thing that comes to mind is just based off of kind of like, the corner that I've painted myself into, in terms of how I operate as as a consultant and as a coach, is there's a little bit of a paywall. Like I'm not inexpensive to work with these days, and so a lot of people who will come to me for coaching or consulting, they're high end executives. They're people who have access and already own a lot of these biohacks. They're people who are already, you know, getting NADIVs and you know, sitting in a in a hyperbaric oxygen therapy chamber. And it's kind of funny because I'll. I'll get some intake forms, you know, from these folks who are independently wealthy executives. And I'll be like, well, how you know, how much time per day do you have to be able to devote to you know some some of the, the body upgrading, the biohacking, the exercise, et cetera? And and I'll say, Well, I've only got about four to five hours on any given day to be <laughs> able to take care of my body. I'm like, four to five hours? Holy hell. Yeah. Uh, they're they're in a, a pretty fortunate position. And yet once I get down and start talking to a lot of these folks, they're unhappy, they're unfulfilled. Some of them are on antidepressants. Many of them are divorced. Um, Many of them have relationship issues or are estranged from their children or their parents. And there's a great deal of searching for happiness and fulfillment. And it just so happens in the sector in which you and I are operating, people are searching for that happiness and fulfillment through upgrading their bodies and their brains, through biohacking, through supplementation, through exercise, sometimes through masochistic physical events like a triathlon or a marathon or a Spartan race. And, you know, I talked about foundational principles for the body earlier when I was talking about the body electric. But man, oh man, the the most important thing that I find myself increasingly emphasizing not only on my own podcast, to my audience, but to my to my private clients, is the importance of the spiritual disciplines as a path to ultimate fulfillment and happiness. That one neglected part of us that's often shriveled and shrunk up because we're not caring for it, the spark inside of us, our spirit and our soul. What is that fed through? It's fed through relationships, love, family dinners, a gratitude practice. A meditation practice, some kind of hope or belief in a higher power, or part of a religious body, or a prayer practice. In many cases, um, a, a focus on charity and service in the local community and taking time out to do that. Uh, you know, and and if you look at you know authors such as uh, Richard Foster is a perfect example. He has wonderful books out there about the spiritual disciplines. You know, you find that once you begin to weave these in, you know, and and now when I'm writing out programs, it's like you know 15 minutes morning gratitude and here's where you do your 20 minute meditation practice and it's no longer just about the body and the brain it's about the spirit as well because that's where the ultimate fulfillment is derived and everything else is really just an attachment right and and again i'll mention him a second time anthony demello you know in a book like like awakening he goes through this very very elegantly how once once you can let go of that p- persistent Um, almost placing on, on a pedestal your own health at the detriment of your relationships or your spiritual health, once you can let go of that and recognize all of those things are simply attachments that don't actually bring you joy, and you can simply immerse yourself in these activities for the mere pleasure of immersing yourself in them and not because you expect them to bring you ultimate fulfillment and happiness, I think it's a far healthier way to approach this Really, ultimately and and admittedly fun sector of toying with human biology, of feeling better, of having better cognitive health, of of having, you know, whatever, better aesthetics. So whatever, Maybe, maybe you take pride in looking good with your shit off at the beach. And that's great. Take pleasure in that, but understand that that's fleeting. That's an attachment. And the best thing that you can do, the number one thing you can do, the most lofty of goals would be to care for your spirit once you care for your spirit, and that's really your only attachment, and you let go of all these other attachments, you know, then I think you're set up to live a far more fulfilled life and you run into a lot fewer of, of these issues of people just, you know, on on this constant struggle and search for the next body and brain enhancement tool that's gonna bring them ultimate happiness and fulfillment.
0: Yeah, I think it's also it's an interesting perspective because it's not obvious that. Focusing on quantified self in physical or of performance leads to thinking about spirituality, but, in, 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 but if you think about it one layer deeper, that's, that's a level of self-awareness that I would say most people don't have. They don't ever introspect how do you even quantifiably improve yourself. So in some sense, well, this the, the, of the, tracking, the, the,
1: the people that do, to interrupt yeah. you, sorry. The people that do, right, so there are two things. They're lucky- they hear a podcast like this, or they pick up the right book at the bookstore and the light bulb goes on and they realize, oh, there's something more fulfilling than this. But what you find the majority of the time is I got cancer. I had a stroke. I had a heart attack. I ran into a wall. Uh, my, my adrenal glands quit producing, like, like these things that people run into it. And it's when they hit the wall that they realize, oh shit, what I've been doing is actually not what I should have been doing. But I'm trying to bring that message to the world so that less people get hurt or go so long without fulfillment and wind up sick or injured and instead simply progress into a healthier pathway naturally through this journey of self-discovery and enlightenment.
0: Yep. And I think the tools of quantified self and tracking are very, it's a nice system to allow one to actually attack some of the broader, less quantitative the concepts like spirituality and a life well lived, especially with the rejection of like the standard media clips, I feel like there will be more importance for these types of conversations to help inspire people to really introspect around what a well left life means and how to achieve that. I want to move on to boundless your new book. I think it just came out officially the last couple of days. Congratulations.
1: Yesterday at the time of this recording. Yeah.
0: What inspired you to make this latest edition of the book? And then I think there's a number of a lot more technical things that we can kind of dive into I already have some audience questions on specific little little advices and little little measurements ready
1: look when i shot this book to all the big new york publishing houses everybody turned it down because i wanted to write a comprehensive human blueprint on mind body and even spiritual optimization and also include you know fringe things like you know sex orgasm psilocybin lsd you know a lot of these things that that some people also kind of steer clear of or want to dumb down, Then it really is just like a a cookbook for the human body, brain, and spirit, you know, for immunity, gut, digestion, performance, fat loss, you know, anti-aging and longevity chapters, like 180 pages in and of itself. And then I took all the the work that got cut, you know, over 450 additional pages, put them on the website for people to be able to access, along with over 3,000 scientific references, every article, every podcast, every book that i recommend for people to take a deeper dive in anything that they discover in it so far the initial feedback is people are getting out of it exactly what i wanted them to get out of it a big fun adventure that you can use for years to come to optimize yourself very cool
0: one of the interesting taglines associated with the launch of the book is that you've successfully biohacked or optimized your biological age to 9 and your chronological age is 40 so what does that exactly mean What kind of telemeter or epigenetic test or or biological
1: clock are you doing to actually, uh, assess that nine, nine nine-year-old, uh, self? That, that was actually something that appeared not in my book, but in that times article from the UK, uh, which, which, uh, had a lot of interesting claims in it that, that weren't necessarily true, you know, about giant bottles of LSD in my refrigerator down around where the kids (laughs) could grab it. And, uh, and, and me, uh, you know, popping a bunch of Viagra when visiting Harry Potter with my kids and turning beet red. Ro- like, some of this stuff was uh, was taken way out of context, uh, including the fact that I'm 38 uh, chronologically, okay. not 40. Uh, and the analysis that I ran was uh, one of the more accurate telomere analysis. There's a lot out there, like life length and tele years. But SpectraCell is, in my opinion, the most accurate right now in terms of the way that they're analyzing telomeres. And that shows a biological age of nine in terms of telomere length. But admittedly, all the telomere analysis are looking at a small collection of cells, not necessarily at the telomere length of every cell and every organ in the human body. And all it is, is an approximation. I think that the newer Horvath clocks of actual DNA methylation are more accurate. But those right now, I, I actually... I'm waiting back on the results from a Horvath methylation clock study that I did. uh, It was over a month ago, so I should be getting the results back soon. That more kind of like predicts timeline of life and you know when you're when you're going to drop dead, basically. Uh, And and honestly, I think those methylation clocks are more accurate. But that particular analysis was a telomere analysis. And really, what's more important to me is if those telomeres either aren't changing dramatically in terms of shortening or they are growing longer. And, uh, if if that's happening, I don't care as much about the actual biological age, whether it's nine or 18 or 27, I care more about the fact that what I'm doing is making an impact. And even more importantly for me personally, I feel like a teenager. I mean, my libido, my ability to be able to bounce back from workouts my immune system, the way I feel when I travel, the way I feel after a hard workout. Um, I just feel really good. So again, returning back to what we were talking about in terms of clinical studies, yeah, it's a multimodal stacking of a lot of things. Then you can't necessarily say what exactly is working, right? Is it the peptide protocol? Is it the red light? Is it the grounding and earthing? Is it the incredibly long family dinners that we now have every night? Is it, you know? learning how to play handpan and ukulele instead of just sticking to my same old hobbies like tennis or weightlifting and snowboarding. You know, who knows what it is? But ultimately, you know, I I think when you stack a lot of these things, uh, you do see a profound impact in terms of the way you feel biologically. You know, whether that's nine, I don't know. I can tell you emotionally I'm probably That's that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah,
0: I think I'm excited about the technology and the science developing on these biological clocks. I mean, even with the Horvath clock, I think DNA methylation is interesting data point, but, you know, there's also, I I should, you know, with some of the researchers at the Buck Institute, there's also apparently some tissues that don't track well with the Horvath clock. So even with some, again, like telomere length is an interesting specific data point, but is that describe all of aging? Probably not. It's going to be a multitude of factors that describe aging.
1: Yeah. I get into like 12 different parameters in in the longevity chapter of the book, like hand grip via dynamometer, uh, walking speed, resting heart rate. Heart rate variability, then you have telomere length, you have methylation, but there's a variety of things. I mean, uh, uh, deadlifting weight with a hex bar, like there's a lot of different things that you can track. Yeah, and I think some of the functional
0: strength markers just seem a lot more intuitive, right? Okay, you you have have grip strength, that's a really understandable sign rather than some DNA methylation tag or some random telomere length. And it, right. v right, VO2 max as well, yeah. VO2 max and lactate right. threshold, right? Moving on to experimentation. Are you doing anything that's new today? I know that you've done some experiments with the carnivore diet. That's been pretty popular in the last year or two. I think you see you know, my friend, Dr. Cameron Seppa, talk about dopamine fasting. There's a cycle of media coverage on this notion of dopamine fasting. I think we saw the carnivore diet go from fairly niche, and then the Petersons blew it up into some mainstream kind of discussion topic. Yeah. Are you expecting anything? And if you can make a prediction, what are some of these things that are happening now that mass media will pick up and talk about as some crazy thing in two years?
1: It's probably three, three interesting things I'm doing right now. First three that come to mind would be um, a um, filtering the blood. And there are a lot of good regenerative medicine docs now who are not only using 10 pass ozone where you actually pass your blood out, you're sitting there working on your computer or whatever, and then it's treated with ozone, uh, which can do things like address mold, mycotoxins, biofilm, et etc., and then pass back into your body after it's been ozonated. So that's called 10-pass ozone. But now there's a newer protocol that kind of closely mimics what something like a young blood transfer would do, but without the $50,000 price tag. And that one's called ozone dialysis, in which the blood is drawn out, it's ozonated, but then it also passes through essentially what's very similar to, like a kidney dialysis filter and then back into the body. And there's even like a bucket kind of underneath the filter. That's fun to look at when you're getting the protocol because you can see all this crap collecting in the bucket, everything from, from lipid particles to biofilms and then the, the clean blood. And you can see a distinct difference in color between the blood coming out of one arm and the blood going back into the yeah. other arm. And you, you feel like Superman afterwards. So Uh, I'm, I'm pretty keen on ozone dialysis right now. And I'm also excited because the, the doctor who I work with on that is he's going to be at my house on Friday. And another area that I think is going to continue to explode in popularity, uh, and efficacy for people, uh, is peptides, right? And most of the research for these come out of Russia. One fascinating human trial showed decreased all cause risk of mortality from nearly every chronic disease that, that exists, diabetes, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease, et cetera. With just a couple of 10 to 20 day protocols of the peptide epitalon, how, And how which long were sub, subcutaneously injected peptide? Years. Look up the research of Dr. Kavinson, K H A V I N S O N. Fantastic epithelon research. And there are a few others that, as calorie restriction memetics or um, inducers of mitochondrial biogenesis, work similarly, uh, particularly uh, Humanin is one. And C is another, mots c There are peptides also for the brain. I used one this morning uh, because I was up till about 3 a.m. last night with this book launch, you know, just putting out fires and taking care of everything. And we know that lack of sleep can induce some blood-brain barrier leakage and decrease integrity of the blood-brain barrier. And there's, there's one thing that really helps with that barrier, and it's a transdermal peptide you apply in your carotid arteries on the other side of your neck called Dihexa. There's one also that acts similarly that's administered intranasally, very useful for TBI, for concussion, as a nootropic, et cetera, called CMAX, right? So there are peptides for the brain. There are others for healing tissue extremely readily, like uh, injectable BPC-157 or TB-500, the former for inflammation, the latter for uh, things like collagen, elastin fibers. And this whole world of peptides I think is very exciting. A lot of really good docs now are getting certified through something called the International Peptide Society. And you can now go there, find a directory of practitioners who are well-versed in peptide protocols and who have access to actual amino acid sequencers of peptides, which is important because most of the cheap stuff you buy online is basically created by feeding E. coli a certain medium. And then essentially the, the E. coli are, are pooping out peptides. And, and the the reliability of those and the actual accuracy of the amino acid sequence is questionable. But if people want to get into peptides, I recommend you go to the International Peptide Society. Look up a doctor through there who's working with a good company like uh, Made Compounding, for example, to get good peptides. And then um, in a world of constant stress, in a world where you know I've got an hour-long flight and I just need to knock myself out for a quick 20-minute nap on a plane – um, I've been using this in the hyperbaric oxygen chamber as well for a nap in there. You can use it to decrease stress during the day. Um, the idea of vagal nerve stimulators, I really like. Typically, a stimulator is placed over the temporal lobes or just behind the ears. That elicits a signal that activates the parasympathetic system via the vagus nerve for very quick relaxation, something like the circadia Fisher-Wallace device or the New column device. To actually deliver an electrical stimulus to calm the vagus nerve, and when I track my HRV with that, it is one of the best ways to increase HRV extremely quickly and to relax the body. And you know, we know the vagus nerve is toned through chanting, singing, humming, you know, meditating, uh, cold water exposure for the face and the head. But I really like the use of some of these technologies to just stimulate it very quickly to induce a, a rapid state of relaxation all that being said i think in 2020 one of the main things we're going to see more and more of something that already took off in 2019 and something i've already alluded to is photobiomodulation i mean again look up the work of dr michael hamblin on pubmed you know look up the resources on websites like like the vlite website or the juve website and you know the use of of near infrared and red light therapy to induce, you know, activation of cytochrome c oxidase and mitochondria to induce nitric oxide release, skin health, uh, an endocrine response, etc. I'm I'm increasingly impressed with what I see with photobiomodulation, and so I think that's going to be something, you know, kind of like keto and CBD was last year. I think that'll be big in the sector this year. All right, we'll put that down as prediction. I think that's a pretty good one.
0: Um, I know we're out of time here, so we got the boundless book. Again, congrats on the launch. Any events, any uh, <laughs> conferences that you might I've, be going I've out to the next month. I've increasingly
1: switched all my computers to the Brave browser, uh, which is full on, you know, <laughs> open source. It's faster than Chrome, anyways, and doesn't track in the same way. And I'm I'm increasingly using DuckDuckGo and Quant as my search engine just because yeah. it doesn't censor health data in the same way. But but you could find me on Google if you had to. Uh, the books at BoundlessBooks.com and my website. Most of my social media handles are Ben Greenfield Fitness.
0: All right. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks for uh, being back on and a lot of food for thought here. I'll be back on soon. Awesome. Thanks, man. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN, visit www.hvmn.com slash pod. Thank you for tuning in.